I like, I like that. There's a vast and almost always intimidating chasm between knowing and doing. Between believing and acting. Between the, the theoretical and the applied. I dare say we all purport to believe a host of things we've not yet acted upon. I don't know, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure there are a number of you out there that profess to believe certain things, but you've never really ever acted upon them. I, I love what uh, famous theologian in the States, R.C. Sproul, said about this regarding Christians. He said most profess, uh, that most who profess to be Christians are merely theoretical theists, but, and, and they live like practical atheists. I want you to think about that. He's indicting much of what is called the modern church that we're more theoretical in what we believe than, than, um, than practical. And we actually live as any unbeliever would live. Very little different. Except maybe, as one of my uh, favorite pastors used to say, except for the inconvenience of coming to church. Right? Um, that's... Uh, you know, I've been in ministry, lay and vocational ministry now for about 30 years, and I would, I would agree with R.C. Sproul. I've seen far more theoretical theists than I've seen applied theists. It's something that, that I have regrettably have seen. And it's at least partially true in all of our lives. Aren't we all, be honest with yourself, aren't we all still uncovering and dealing with... Um, this in our own lives, don't we profess to believe certain things that we've not yet really incorporated into our life? We're not really doing it yet. We know what God's Word says, but we, we're not really doing what God has told us to do in this sphere of our life or this arena. We know what Christ has called us to do, but we are not yet doing it. We're still walking with the world in that common sense sort of way. I want to share a story with you. I, I, I'm sure I've shared it with the congregation before, but I'm sure it's been a long time, so probably none of you have heard it. But how many of you have had one of those theological epiphanies? You know what the word epiphany means, right? I looked it up. I want to give you a proper definition. It's a comprehension or perception of reality by means of a sudden intuitive realization. So how many of you have had an epiphany? Uh, yeah, it happens to all human beings. Uh, it certainly happens to Christians. Um, but back in the year 2000, uh, this church, which was dead at that time, two or three people left, and uh, they had asked Karen and I to come and pastor this church. And uh, I was in my last semester at seminary. It was a Friday afternoon. I love Friday afternoons. My classes were over. My two part-time jobs were over. And I was on my way to, uh, I was getting ready to go to Wendy's. Does everybody know what Wendy's is? You non-Americans don't know. It's like a McDonald's, but it's better. And on Friday, I would always treat myself to a double cheeseburger, uh, order fries, and a Dr. Pepper. And so I was getting ready. I just left my, one of my jobs, and I was standing on a street corner. And I was thinking about going to Italy. Um, and uh, we had no assurance, no assurance of, of income. And I was thinking, was this prudent, right? Is this, is this a prudent thing to do? 
And I, I'm standing on the street corner. I'm waiting for the light to change because I'm going to walk across the street, right? And, you know, I mean, I'm about to graduate from seminary. I know a lot of stuff about God. I know a lot of stuff, you know? A lot of stuff. I could impress you with how much I know about God. Um, but it was standing on that street corner. The Holy Spirit brought home to me, why are you worrying about Italy? And, and the thought was this, if God is who He says He is, why would I ever shrink back from anything He's called me to do? Amen? And then the second thought was, if God is who I say I believe God is, why should I be doubting that this is God and God will provide? And the light changed and I'm walking across the street. And by the time I got to the other side of the street, I knew we were going to come to Italy. Because the Lord had convicted me of all these things I knew but was afraid to do. I was kind of afraid to go to Italy with no source of income. Really. No... no uh, confirmed source of income. And actually, standing on that street corner, God says, I'm God. Do you believe me or not? I mean, isn't that what it comes down to for Christians who are actually going to do what God's called us to do, which is to do Hebrews 11. We're called to live our faith large in the world so people see that our God is God. The Lord was blasting me out of my theoretical theism and my practical atheism. I mean, I was about to graduate from seminary. Bam! I was a practical atheist. Because I was afraid. Isn't God good? <laughs> Isn't God good? And uh, He brought me out of that, and uh, I praise the Lord for it. I've said this simple thing to you many, many times. Um, I hope... The power of it is not lost on you. It's a quote from John Piper. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology leads to wrong believing, which leads to wrong living. Of course, the, the, the contrast to that is that good theology leads to right believing, which leads to right living. So are you living what you say you believe? That's really what Second Peter is about. You know, that's really what it's been about. He's been challenging us to actually believe and do. That's really, ultimately, if you want to summarize it, I think that could be the core of it. Karen and I are in Milan because of good theology. Because God's God. We're not here because it looked like a great opportunity from a worldly standpoint. You know, we're not here because the package was good. <laughs> we're here because God revealed Himself to us and said, I'm God, will you go with me? And we did. And I just want to say it's been a lot of fun. God has not, if you're a Christian tonight, God has not merely called you to know His Word. He's called you to do His Word. I mean, that's really the whole sermon. We could stop. I won't stop. That's the sermon. Um, if you're a Christian tonight, He has called you to do the Word. James 1, 
22. It's true, isn't it? That ultimately, if you don't really do it, that's real good evidence that you don't really believe it. Isn't that true? You know, talk is cheap, right? It's easy to talk a good game. The talk is cheap. God-given, born-again, saving faith is not merely something that we have. It's always something we're doing. Yes, we have faith, but the biblical Christian is doing his faith or her faith. They do it. Every morning when they get up, they do their faith. They don't merely have faith. Real Christians don't simply know good theology. We progressively, and I like this, incarnate our theology. Again, Karen and I are in Milan because God's God. There's no other reason for us to be here. When I was coming out of seminary, Milan was not on my radar. I was not interested in Milan. I did not want to come to Milan. I was looking at three or four other places that I was more interested in. But God brought us here. And uh, obviously, He knew best, and it's been, it's been great. As I said to you earlier, I believe we could summarize Second Peter as knowing and doing. It's biblical Christianity. Uh, you may remember how Peter started this, uh, this great epistle. Anybody remember what the key word was in chapter 1 of Second Peter? Anybody remember? Five times in chapter 1, is the word knowledge. Five times the word knowledge. Anybody remember the key verse in chapter 1? This was it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things. Five times, God is talking about, in 2 Peter chapter 1, He's bringing up the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, And then he says, go practice these things. If you do, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Chapter 1, it's about knowing and doing. It's about knowing and doing. It's what we've seen in chapter 3 as well. Verse 2, remember the Word and commandment of the Lord. Remember and know the Word. Know the Word. And the emphasis in chapter 3 has been that Jesus is coming back and He will judge the world. But you come down to verse 11 and it says this. This is the implication of knowing these truths, these biblical truths. God says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct in godliness. Again, know my word, do my word. What kind of people are you, should you be if you know my word? If you know I'm coming back? How should you live? Knowing and doing. It's biblical Christianity, beloved. I know that, you know, I know that uh, there are large segments of what is called Christendom today. And it's just rote. It's just brain dead. It's heart dead. It's just... I show up, I do a religious thing, it doesn't impact my life, I go out in the world, I live just like the world. I make decisions just like the world. I think just like the world. I plan just like the world. I prioritize just like the world. I spend my money just like the world. We understand that. God says, this is not how my people live. 
My people are to know My Word and do My Word. And we understand none of us do it perfectly. We get that. I'm not talking about perfection. God says, remember your biblical theology and then incarnate the implications of it. So I'll stop and ask you, is that a priority in your life? Is that something that you are consciously doing? Incorporating always, folding in the Word of God into your life. Folding the Word of God into your work. Folding the Word of God into your relationships. Folding the Word of God into your career. Into your um, studies at university. This is what He's called us to, to do, beloved. You heard the text read, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, but according to His promise, we are looking for hev- the looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Do you really believe Jesus is coming back? Verse 13, Are you really looking for it? Are you looking for Him? Are you looking for the heavens and the new heaven and new earth? Does your life declare, I'm looking for Jesus? To be coming back? Does your life declare, I really belong in the new heaven and new earth, not this one? Does your life declare it? This is what God is saying. He says, if you're really looking for these things, what's the the first word in verse 14? What is it? Someone tell me. Therefore, there's always a therefore with God. He doesn't reveal truth for nothing. He reveals truth to His people so His people will go, oh, guess what? They'll do it. Not because you think, well, that's pretty theology. I like that. That'll be, that'll be great in the liturgy next week. That's not why God reveals truth. God reveals truth to change your life, beloved. To change your life. And as He changes your life, to change the world as you share the truth of Jesus Christ in your orbit. He says, therefore, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. We are, as we talked about last week, we are aliens, we are exiles, we are strangers, we are pilgrims. We do not belong here. God has left us here. What does it say? What what was the Great Commission? Matthew 28. Why are we here? To do what? Make disciples. That's why we're here. Ultimately and preeminently, we're here to make disciples. I know that we get caught up in a lot of things. And we do have a lot of subordinate responsibilities. I get that. But if you call yourself a Christian, your preeminent purpose for still walking around, breathing God's air, eating God's food, is to proclaim the Gospel. It's to live the Gospel. This is what the Lord has called us to do. As we talked about last week, Colossians 3.2, we are not ultimately focused on the things that are on the earth, but on the things that are above. I'm going to ask you, as I asked you last week, is that a reality for you? Is that really true for you? Be honest with yourself. Is that really true for you? Are you looking at the Bema Seat? Are you looking at heaven? Or do you allow your attention to be stolen by every imaginable thing in the world? (laughs) You're really preoccupied with this. And beloved, certainly there are legitimate preoccupations 
with respect to the responsibilities we have as, as, uh, as fathers and mothers and uh, responsibilities we have in the church and at the university and in our work. These are real. But it's all under the, the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? We, we do it for His glory. You know, when I used to work in the secular world, well, why do, you know, it, it was so hard sometimes. I just wasn't into it. It was a good job, but I wasn't into it. But what does the Bible tell the Christian to do? Do it as unto the Lord. You know, this is how we are to prosecute life on the planet. It's Hebrews 11. It's knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. God says, if you really know Me and really believe Me, verse 14, you be diligent. Be diligent. I looked up this word diligent. Uh, I looked at every English translation. Uh, most of them do translate the Greek word here, diligent. Some say make every effort. One says strive. I looked it up in the dictionary. It means to be characterized by persevering and painstaking effort. This is diligent. Does your Christianity look like this? Let me go back. I'll start. Does your Christianity look like this? Are you diligent? Are you making every effort? Are you striving? Is it characterized by persevering, painstaking effort? I looked at some synonyms. Is your Christianity characterized by being hardworking and industrious and conscientious and attentive and careful? Is this what your Christianity looks like, beloved? None of us are perfect in this regard. Least of all me. But God says, be diligent with what I have given you. You know, we possess the greatest thing in the cosmos, right? The knowledge of Jesus Christ. We belong to God. We are God's people. Nothing else really matters compared to that. We are God's people. Are you living like you are God's people? That's the question before all of us tonight. That is the question. I know that many who profess to be Christians, and I obviously as an international pastor, I see this a lot, because people are always just kind of flushing through here. Uh, you know, God is just a small part of their, their life. He's just a small addition. If I have time, I do God. If I have time, I do church. If it doesn't interrupt what I really want to do, I'll show up on Sunday and I'll worship Him. But if I get, if I get a better opportunity, no, no, no. You know, it's... it's it's a Christianity of, of convenience and not conviction. And, you know, I see that a lot. Jesus is merely a spiritual appendage or a theological accessory. You know, one of my favorite preachers in the past, Charles Spurgeon, he's an old guy, but he says, you know, he's dead now, he's a dead guy, one of my favorite dead guys. Um, he said, you know, everybody has a spiritual spasm or two. And I get this. I've seen this in 30 years. You know, people will make a profession of faith. They look very excited. And they look genuine. Uh, I've even baptized some of these people. And then, you know, five years later, you can't find them. You can't find them. They're not in the body of Christ. They're not serving the Lord. They don't love Christ. You know, it was, uh, yeah, I'll add Jesus to my life. And it, if it helps me, great. If not, I'll discard him. And that's what happens. Many times, you know, I, as, 
as you can imagine, as a pastor, sometimes people tell me why they weren't here on Sunday. I just assume you not tell me. <laughs> just don't tell me. I don't want to know. I mean, I get... You, sometimes I think, why did you tell me that? Don't tell me that. That's more important? Don't tell me that. Just don't tell me. I don't want to know. And I understand there are legitimate times. I get that. But beloved, we're God's people. Where else would God's people be on Sunday? And what, you know, hey, I'm not going to preach to the choir tonight. You guys are here. <laughs> praise the Lord. I praise God for every one of you. I praise God for everybody that walks in that door. It's just, it's the mercy of God when somebody walks in that door. It's the mercy of God. God's at work here, man. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus says, be found in peace. Let me find you in peace. What does this mean? I think it's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think that's the kind of peace that the Lord's talking about here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Only the true Christian can truly be anxious for nothing. Why is that so? Because we know that our God is God and our God is for us. Amen? We don't have to be anxious. Now, some of us sometimes get anxious. I guess because we like to. You don't need to be. Your God is sovereign. Romans 8.28 is always true. He's always working good. Even on the hard day. Even when you can't cry anymore. God's doing an awesome thing. Do you trust Him? That's really the bottom line. Will Jesus find you living in peace? Will your heart be at peace when He comes? Only the genuine Christian, back to Philippians 4, uh, will be in intimate communication with God in heartfelt prayer, knowing Him, loving Him, casting our burden upon Him. That's really what the, the, the text is talking about. Back to Philippians 4 again, only the genuine Christian will pray with a heart of thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving is a beautiful thing. You want to change your attitude like that? Start to count your blessings with God. As, I challenged, as I've been challenging recently, you know, don't look at the three things that, are, that, that you don't like in your life, the three things that you consider problems. Don't look at that. Don't focus on that. You have to deal with it, but don't focus on that. Focus on the 10,001 things, good things, that God is doing. And we get this piece back to Philippians 4 that surpasses all comprehension. Incomprehensible peace. Do you have it? Do you have it, beloved? It's the peace that guards and protects and defends and shields the Christian's heart. It's those great verses that the New Testament uses to talk about the coming of Jesus and how His people uh, think about it. You know that great verse, 1 John 2.28, we will not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. We will not because we've been word doers. Not perfect. We all fail. We confess our sin. Jesus cleanses us. The sin is gone. But we've really given ourselves to this thing. We don't just know the Word, we do the Word. 
so we do not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 1 John 2.28 2 Timothy 4.8 We love His appearing. We love it. He's coming. We look forward to it. This should be the mindset of the Christian. And of course, we, we can echo what John says in the Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus! Come! This was the sentiment of John as he finished the Revelation. So let me ask you, beloved, are you ready to meet Jesus tonight? What if He came tonight? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to stand before Him tonight? Are you ready? If He takes us home tonight, are you ready? Are you ready to stand before Him? Are you ready to give an account? Jesus says, be ready. Be be found at peace when I come. At peace with me is what God is saying to us there. And Peter goes on, he says, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless. Obviously, this is a reference to being in Christ. We're spotless and blameless in Christ. But it's also, uh, it, it also has in view here that we are dealing with our sin. Are you dealing with the sin in your life? We are proactively cooperating with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. I say this to you all the time. We are painfully aware of our sin and we are in that Romans 7 war. We are fighting with our sin. We are, we're not ignoring it and tolerating it and excusing it and justifying it. We are confessing, repenting, forsaking, and abstaining from it. We are dealing with our sin. This is what we're talking about. To be found spotless and to be found blameless. Let me read 15 and 16 for you. And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which uh, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. The first thought here in verse 15, it echoes verse 9. You remember, the Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness. He's patient. Remember, we went through that in great detail. God is patient that men might repent. This is an echo of that text. This is the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. Today, if you hear the Word of the Lord, come. Come. This is a day of mercy. This, this interim time, this church age between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, it's the day of salvation. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Romans 1.18 is true. The wrath of God's being revealed uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's true. But so is Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is leading you to repentance? Both things are true. Wrath is being revealed and, and God is offering grace and mercy. Both things are true. We're supposed to be out in the world sharing this, beloved. Both things are true. As a preacher, I always know two things are happening when I'm preaching. Two things are always happening. Maybe a billion more things God is doing, but I know He's always doing at least two things. He's saving and He's judging. 
Those who will come to Christ, receive Christ, He's saving. Those who are rejecting Christ, even as I preach, and I know what happens, God's always doing these two things. In this age, He's saving and He is judging. Peter says, regard the Lord's patience to be salvation. And there's urgent implication here for the converted and the unconverted. Obviously, for the unconverted, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to the Lord and be saved. Obviously, for the believer, the implication is here is you and I have got work to do. That's why we're on the planet. We've been touching on this all the way through the, the sermon and even through the book of Second Peter. We've got work to do. We're here to spread the Gospel. We're here to make disciples. As we've seen in the last few weeks, Jesus is coming back and He will judge the world. So what does the Christian do? We get in our pajamas and we just sit on the roof and wait for Him, right? Right? No! We're busy. We're busy doing what He called us to do. Doing what He's left us here to do. We're fulfilling the great commission that He has given us. We are giving witness that Romans 1.18 is true. The wrath of God's coming. It's coming. But Romans 2.4 is also true. During this age of grace, Mercy is available. Come to Jesus. For now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. That is our proclamation to a rebellious world. And you notice here, I trust in verses 15 and 16, that that Peter is affirming the apostleship of Jesus. Pardon me. Paul. He's affirming the apostleship of Paul. Several crucial facts uh, here regarding biblical Christianity that are explicitly implied in these two verses. One is that Peter, who's the apostle of all apostles, he's number one. Nobody could deny that Peter's an apostle. Some of you may have heard that some do deny that Paul is a legitimate apostle. Apostle. But Peter affirms here in Scripture that Paul is an apostle and that his letters uh, are on par with Scripture. These are the implications here. The net result being that those who seek to discount Paul and his letters are effectively discounting God and His Word. I want to make sure that we understand that. So, Those who find fault with the words of Paul in the Bible are really finding fault with the Word of God, beloved. Don't let somebody get away with disparaging the letters of Paul. I've heard it a lot. People want to say, well, Paul, he's just a bigot. He's a sexist. He's a misogynist. He's a homophobe. He's an elitist. He's an extremist. He's an intruder. He's an interloper. He's a false apostle. When you hear that, you know who's talking. Satan is talking. Peter has put Paul's letters on par with the Scripture. It is Scripture. And don't let anyone disparage Paul. He's simply the the mouthpiece of of God. And of course here, 
You already know what Peter says in verse 16. Some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Does anybody, can anybody get that? Yeah, it is, right? It's hard to understand. We get that. If we study our Bible, we know that. How could it be otherwise, beloved? How could it be otherwise? If infinite mind is communicating with finite mind, not only finite, but fallen and temporal and physical and sinful and rebellious, I mean, how could there not be things that are hard to understand? You know, we at ICM, we preach the Bible. It's just what we do. And if we hit one of those verses, it's hard to understand. We say, man, this is hard to understand. But we preach it, right? We don't run from it. We don't try to edit the Word of God. It's one of the hallmarks of pseudo-Christianity. You know, services that are solely built around ritualism, right? Or solely built around entertainment. I mean, this is a, uh, these are hallmarks of pseudo-Christianity, false Christianity. True biblical, a true biblical church will always put the Word of God at the center, the Word of God is always at the center. That's why in the old churches, there used to be the guy used to stand up, he'd be right in the middle of the congregation, and he would be, in a, he'd be perched up there. Really, you know, I should be perched up here. Really. That would help you understand. That God's Word is supreme. God's Word is the center, right? I hope that's true for you, beloved. This is how we should be thinking about it. I love what Piper says about this. John Piper, famous preacher in the States. He says, you know, it should be expected that preaching will sometimes be the most demanding thing you do all week. I'm not talking about the preacher. I'm talking about the hearer. It may be the hardest thing you do all week because God is speaking to you. It's not going to be like watching a movie or listening to a song or watching the media or... It's hard sometimes. How could it be otherwise? We're dealing with God, beloved. We're dealing with God. Real preaching will sometimes be complex and mysterious. And you have to receive it with humility and you have to exert much mental effort. This is where much of the congregation of the modern church falls down. There are many, many are unwilling to exert any mental effort. They're unwilling to go home and open the Bible and study it themselves and, and have the Holy Spirit teach them. You know, I tell you, every once in a while, you shouldn't believe it because I say it. If you can't see it in the Scripture, then you certainly shouldn't believe it. I, I hope that some of the young adults are committing Isaiah 66-2 to memory because anytime I teach something difficult, I always take them to that text. God says, but, this is, but to this one uh, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You know, I, I'm always amazed that people who call themselves Christians and they get offended because you preach the text. Obviously, this happens to me. They're offended because you preach what God said. They're offended. How dare you? God said it. I mean, I didn't say it. God said it. Right? You, don't believe, you wouldn't believe how many people walked out that door and never came back because they were offended. Because I said something God says. Beloved, it ought not be like this. Men love to distort, as Peter says here, men love to distort God's Word. The, I looked it up. The literal Greek here is to put it on the rack. 
They take the Word and they torture it. They put it on the rack. They twist it and distort it. And the word here, the literal, is torture it. Verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Men enthusiastically and fearlessly distort the Word of God. There are so many false expressions of Christianity in the world. There's so many. There's so many. I won't get into that. But God says, be on your guard. Christian, be on your guard. False teachers are everywhere. They are everywhere. I love how Paul said it to the Ephesians in chapter 6 of Ephesians. He said, gird your loins with truth. Are you doing that? Part of the way you do that is being here, obviously. I applaud you for that. But you need to be doing it also on your own and studying in small groups. Beloved, God lays this at your feet. He lays this at your feet. He will not spoon-feed you. He's an awesome Father, but He will not spoon-feed you. He lays it at your feet. You're supposed to get it He went to the trouble to reveal this, write this, preserve this, translate this for you. And He lays it at your feet. Know it. Know it. Are you giving yourself to the study of God's Word? It's our responsibility, beloved. God will not spoon-feed you His Word. He expects you to Study it, and as you do, the Spirit of God will come alongside and teach you. So to be, you know, to, to really, I, th- I think, incarnate what God is saying to us here, we need to be in a good church. We need to attend and join and be active in, in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. This is indispensable. You can't sit in a church where God's Word is twisted and distorted and tortured without running the risk of being led astray. I see it all the time. God lays this at your feet. You be in My Word. You be with My people in a church that honors My Word. You know, as my, as my spiritual mentor said, when the Word of God goes, God goes. When the Word of God leaves the church, these, these pseudo Churches, God goes. So what does this phrase mean? Let me, let me finish up real quick. Falling from, falling from your own steadfastness. Obviously, it's not talking about losing your salvation. We understand biblically that that's not a possibility. Peter's just simply talking about losing your sound biblical footing. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, be on your guard lest you lose your footing and get swept off your feet by these lawless and loose-talking teachers. Verse 18, P. 
Peter concludes with a command and a praise. The command is, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This brings us back to where we began. Are you seeking and pursuing and giving yourself uh, to acquiring the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are you knowing so you can do? You can't do unless you know. Are you, are you giving yourself to the knowing of God's Word so you can do God's Word? Beloved, this is what the Lord is calling us to. People ask me, how can they grow as a Christian? Probably some of you would... would there, there are probably some different ways to answer this, but to me the best answer is do the Word. You want to grow? Do what you know. <laughs> do what you know. Because you know what happens when you do what you know? My, one of my life verses, John 14, 21, I think. When you do what you know, what happens? Jesus comes. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And when you do that, I will give myself to you. I will disclose myself to you. You want to grow as a Christian? Go do what you know. Go do what you know. So this is the theme, in my view, of not simply 2 Peter, but, but all of the Bible. Do the Word. I'll go back to James 1.22 in closing. Prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And I'm going to close with Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of James 2.17, which to me is his best paraphrase. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? That's the, that's the message Bible. That's his paraphrase of James 2.17. 16 and 17. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. Beloved, don't be guilty of outrageous nonsense. Do what you know. Do what you know. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight.